right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We're going to get to our interview here shortly with Webb Simpson. I think I, I think I realized in the process of preparing for this interview that I don't think I've ever heard Webb Simpson speak for more than 30 seconds on any topic. So uh, it was good to actually get him to flesh out some thoughts and uh, talk to him about his career. Uh, a lot of hot topic items, Ryder Cup items, you know, winning a major. The Birdman, of course, we're going to get to all that. So I really am excited for you guys to hear this interview before we do get going. If you've exhausted your home improvement project list or you've run out of ways, creative ways to entertain your kids, if you're you know, wearing a groove in your indoor putting mat, the folks at Odyssey have some help for you. Over the last few weeks, they've been running this thing called Home Course. They post these little mini golf hole designs on Instagram. They show a few examples, and then they ask you to recreate it in your own way at home and share your video for a chance to win some Odyssey prizes. So some of the submissions have been pretty awesome. Thomas Bjorn had a... Uh, Frustrating but very strong flex last week, posting himself making a putt between two actual Ryder Cups. I don't know how he has to, how he gets to keep two of them. I'd, I'd have to you know research that one potentially, but probably because Europe has just so many that they've won, they don't know what to do with them. Uh, this week is the bank shot. There's already been some great entries. You can check that out on the Odyssey Golf Instagram or odysseygolf.com. While you're there, you can learn more about the Odyssey 10. I've flirted with the Odyssey 10 for a while. I'm personally back to the number seven. Uh, you can learn more about the Toulon design, which is the fastest growing milled putter on tour. Again, visit odysseygolf.com. That's odysseygolf.com. Here is our interview with Webb Simpson. Saturday mornings are now good times for interviews, huh? Yeah. My, my worst times are now Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in the morning, which those used to be the best, but now that's virtual school, so... <laughs> oh wow! For yeah. five kids, or how many? How many kids are in school? Uh, three kids are in school, but our other two—it's it, kind of tough because like the three are in school, but the other two need full-time attention. So I'm, my wife's a lot smarter than me, so she's doing school. I'm the babysitter, basically. Like the only real way that life looks a lot different right now, besides you know me not traveling, is is school at home. But we're still like so. I live at Quail Hollow, right by the golf course. And so there's still a lot to do right now. Like I could, I, we can go on the course. Um, the course is open. Like we can bike rides, golf cart rides. Like, so it's, we're definitely not bored. Um, because five kids, nine and under, you'll never be bored. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're doing good. I mean, I'm playing golf twice a week right now. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of guys who live in Charlotte, PJ tour, corn Ferry, mini tours, you name it. There's a lot of guys here that are playing. So I'm still playing some, which is nice. What, what are the games like at quail? Who do you play with there? And is that, uh, are there a lot of pros that play there and, and what kind of games do you get there? So there's, there's a group of, uh, members, they're board members, they're longtime Quahala members. They're nicknamed the Moes, short for morons, which I don't know the story behind it. But there's a game with them every day. I don't play with them. I, I feel like I'm going to lose all my money if I play with them. They're so dialed in. They'll play six or seven guys and six or seven carts, even you know non-coronavirus rules. But Jocelyn Wagner is the only other guy who's a member at Quail on tour. But David Coker, who just won on Corn Ferry right before 
the quarantine, uh, he lives in Charlotte. So I've been playing a lot of golf with him and Jonathan Diani and a few other guys who are, you know, PJ Tour Latin America or just mini tours. And so, you know, the games, we've been doing these two days, 36 hole, buy in for a hundred bucks and just some trash on the side. So it's been, you know, low key having a putt for 300 bucks is a little different than the PGA tour, but it's, you still feel the juices a little. So that's, that's, that's been nice. I swear you guys, when you, those putts for 300 bucks, if it involves losing 300, it's, it has more of an effect on you than if you have a putt on the PGA tour that is the difference in 50,000. Is that no, fair to say? It's super fair to say. I, I, I can be honest and say that I've never had a putt where on the PGA tour where I've thought about money over like where I'm finishing, like, and I've talked to other guys, they feel the same way. Like you, if you're 12th, you want to make it for a top 10. You're not thinking 150 grand or 120 grand, 150, but you're right. $300. I feel more pressure because there's no FedEx cut points. It's just money. So you're like really thinking about it. <laughs> what if you're playing with AMs at quail, what do they make you play off of? Uh, I'm, I'm floating around a plus seven right now. Do you keep a, a handicap? My caddy does. So he, Polly records all my scores because we do a guy's trip every year to Eagle Point in Wilmington, North Carolina. And everybody, like, it's, it's pretty official the games we play. So they make me have one. So Polly just keeps mine. And it's like a <laughs> plus eight right now. So I, I'm giving up seven as, as at the moment. Well, what is, how, how do you adjust? In the, this is, uh, I'm not sure how relevant this is to anyone, but how do you adjust? What would you say? Like, so you're playing quail yeah. back tees right now, you know, during a, a normal period of time. That golf course looks different during the tournament. Right. What kind of, what, 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 like, slope or rating adjustment would, in your mind would, do you think it needs for like a normal PGA Tour setup? What is a normal, compare a normal PGA Tour setup to how a course would normally play? Yeah. So, it's actually like a like some parts are easier, some are harder. So one way it's easier in a tour event is it's more firm, so the course plays a lot shorter. But with that, the greens are a lot more firm and fast. So you're gonna you're gonna hit shorter clubs in the greens, but you're gonna pay for it around the greens and on the greens. So like right now on 17 at Quail, everybody knows the Green Mile 17 is a par three. I'm hitting a five iron right now, and I'm able to get it to you know, only release seven or eight yards in the tournament, it might release 15 or 16 yards. And so when it gets firm, your greens actually become a lot smaller and harder to hit. So I think it's a wash, honestly, like I would say the hardest time to play quail hollow is in the winter. Cause the ball's going nowhere. They overseeded in September. You're hitting a lot longer clubs in, but I, I, I think it's that kind of in between, like right before the tournament, it plays the easiest because it is firming out, but the greens aren't quite there yet and, and tournament ready. When you guys go to Wilmington, do you play the Wilmington Municipal Course ever? I used to growing up. I actually really? grew up, I grew up in Wilmington in the summers, uh, but we don't. We, we just stick to – we play Landfall, uh, Porter's Neck, and Eagle Point. Have you played it since they redid it? I think they redid it in 2014. We were no, there in the I fall. It's it. awesome. Is it is it? so good. Yeah, the yeah. greens are – like they're ten out of ten greens. I mean, it's wow. a little scruffy the rest of the course. I'm sure you could re you yeah. can uh, remember that. But, <laughs> but it's, honestly, you know, as a golfer, all all, you, all we really care about is good greens. Right. As long as you're not playing on mud, and if the yeah. greens are good, then then uh, it's a, it's a fun course. I've exactly. ran into Paul uh, a couple times in the Florida Winter Series and came out the wrong end of that battle more frequently. Yeah. How did you guys end up uh, end up partnering up? And what, can you talk about what kind of influence uh, he's been on your game? Yeah. So. Uh, my 
my best friend growing up, William Kane, caddied for me my first two years on tour, and he left uh, the caddy world to go be a pastor in Savannah. And right about that time, Nick Watney called me because Nick and I are buddies. And at the time, Chad Reynolds, who caddies for Keegan Bradley, Chad is caddying for Nick. And Chad and Paul happen to be best friends. And Nick goes, hey, uh, Paulie and Sean O'Hare just split up. I know William was thinking about leaving. Just give him a call. Give Paulie a call if, if you want a caddy. And it, it was weird, like the whole timing of it, because Nick didn't know that my caddy, William, actually already decided that day to leave uh, and go move to Savannah. So anyways, I call Paul to interview him, you know, ask him some questions. <laughs> and I joke with him that by the end of the phone call, I got off the phone. I, I looked at my wife. I said, uh, well, I just got interviewed. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul had some questions for me. And he brought up a great one of his questions that kind of sold him on us working together was he knew my Christian faith and he had seen in sports how sometimes Christians would kind of settle and really not go after and try to be the best they can possibly be. So he just asked me, what are your goals and aspirations? I said, I want to be the best player that I can possibly be. Um, and we had a great conversation and we ended up starting out January of 2011 at Sony and 2011 you know, was arguably my best year on tour. And we just hit it off. I, I think like-minded and faith, we're great friends. Uh, we're into the same stuff. And honestly, as you know, I mean, we're together seven or eight hours a day at a tournament. And so you, you need a great caddy, but you also need a caddy that you can get along with really well. And I have that with Paul. And so it's been a, a great, you know, great ride for nine or 10 years. And that, that's something I was curious about with somebody who has the experience like he has. He caddied for Vijay Singh for, I, I, I don't know how many years you can maybe tell. Five and a half years. Five and a half, you could speak to that. But it's great to have the experience of someone like that on the bag. But does that in any way also kind of add some pressure to you, right? I mean, I've talked to yeah. like uh, someone like Bones, who obviously caddied for Phil for so long. He was kind of like, yeah, it would take, like if I went back to caddying, it would take a really amazing bag for me to do it because I'm so spoiled. Did you? What was the kind of transition period like to working with Paul after he, you know, he's coming off a bag, uh, at least in somewhat recent memory, to, of like VJ's? Yeah, so, I mean, he's with VJ. He's got a number of, I mean, 15 wins maybe at the time. I don't know, 13 wins. Um, caddy for Sean O'Hare, who got to top 10 in the world. Jerry Kelly, they got, he got, you know, they got to President's Cup team for the first time for Jerry. And so, yeah, all those things, I felt, I, I felt it. I felt nervous. Uh, but also, it just felt right. Like, I, I had had a, a decent rookie year on Tour in 09, finishing 70th on the FedEx Cup, or money less than 2010 was kind of sophomore slump, barely kept my card. And I was kind of ready to make a leap in terms of performance. And I knew that, you know, having a caddy like Paul is only going to be a bonus. So I think I let that influence me more than, you know, being nervous or feeling like I had to perform. But you know, we had an okay West Coast swing. And then I almost won in Tampa in March with Paulie. I lost by one to Gary Woodland. And it was like the more I played and the more he caddied for me, the more comfortable I got with him. And so that, that kind of early nervousness, you know, be, having an elite caddy went away, I think, pretty quickly. And, I mean, like I said earlier, because we hit it off with our personality and friendship, like that made it a lot easier. Like if we, if we weren't friends off the golf course, I think that would have been a little harder for me. Yeah. Well, compare, you know, I remember 2011 very vividly. It felt like you were just, you were there every single week. 
And I just want you to kind of compare what it's like to be in contention now. You, it felt like I was watching a totally different guy, like at the at uh, the waste management this year under the yeah. most pressure situations. You're you're still a young guy on tour in 2011. You have an amazing season. What's it like? You had the close call um, with Gary Woodland at the transitions, and then I believe you lost in a playoff to Bubba at the Zurich, yeah. uh, and then you won later that year. But what what's it like being in contention then versus now? Yeah, so I think there's two types of nervousness that I've experienced. And one of them is a nervousness when you're not very confident and it's kind of a place you don't want to be in. And then there's another where you're very confident, but you still feel a little nervous and it's exactly where you want to be. And I think 2011 things were new. Um, I'm experiencing playoffs for the first time, how to try to close a tournament for the first time. And I feel like now, it's not like I've won a ton, but when I get in contention on a Sunday, especially on a back nine, it's right where I want to be. And you feel the moment and you feel that it's a big moment. But now I think of it as, man, this is exactly where I trained to be and I want to be here. I don't want to be anywhere else. And so I think early on, you kind of, you don't really wish it away, but you're like kind of wanting to get out of it pretty quick. And now it's like, man, I'm settled in. This is where I this is where I belong. And so that's a it's a good feeling now compared to how it was then. Well, is it is it fair to say that in 2011 you might feel more like in a situation like that that you have something to lose whereas in 2018 or 2020 it's like an opportunity. It's just like a, is that is yes. that yeah, okay. No, that's fair to say. I mean, I haven't I hadn't won in 2011 uh, on the PGA Tour until August. So each time I had a chance to win, there was an added pressure to get it done. And once I won, I remember thinking that it's going to be a lot easier to win the next time. And two weeks later, I'm in a playoff in Boston, and I didn't feel like it was any easier to win except for the fact that I did not have that pressure of having to win for the first time, which was a nice feeling compared to, you know, the previous experiences. Well, if you're going to tell me you didn't feel any pressure going into the tour championship, I'm not going to believe you because I did. No, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you're in the lead of the FedEx Cup. You have a ten million dollar like how this is the FedEx Cup is kind of new at this point. It's only maybe its fourth or fifth year. How do you? Is there any possible way to ignore what's at the end of that rope? No, I don't think so. Um, I think for some guys, maybe it is. You know, Rory or Tiger. You know where winning the FedEx cup monetarily won't change much for them. But for most other guys, I think it is, I think it's, it's an amazing thing. And I think when you look at it as an opportunity, it'll help you. And, And, you know, 2011, again, it was still new to me. My first time in contention to win the FedEx cup. And so I remember I, I tested some drivers in Atlanta and I think my big mistake there was I hit too many drivers, uh, on Wednesday and it threw me off a little bit. It was my own fault. I think I was just, you know, it, it, you've seen it before. And we sometimes, golfers sound insane because I'm playing the best golf of my life, but yet I'm testing driver shafts. I, I think we have this this sickness where we always feel like we can get better. And maybe sometimes it helps us and serves us. Other times it, it hurts us. And that Wednesday, I remember hitting 50 to 60 drivers. And I just, I, I hit it really poorly that week when I'd been hitting it really well. So as I look back, that's my big regret. And Polly and I, we talked about it. But Again, a good experience to learn from. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Precision Pro. Uh, We've talked about this. Every golfer needs a rangefinder that they can trust to know the precise distance to their target. This can be on the tee box, whether it's in the fairway. The whole no laying up team, C-Suite, Strap Boys, everybody, we all carry Precision Pro golf rangefinders. 
Right now, the NX7 Pro Slope is on sale for $219, and our listeners can receive an extra $20 off by using promo code NOLANGUP. By our math, that means you can add uh, an award-winning slope rangefinder to your golf bag this summer for $199. I know cost is often a prohibitive factor for people that don't carry you know, lasers and rangefinders. You never want to be the guy that is asking your buddies to gun it for them, right? Now you can get it for $199, a great offer. I, I would struggle to find a, I don't think there is a rangefinder that's out there that's even close to comparable quality for a price like that. Plus, it's the only rangefinder that offers free battery replacement services, saving you an average of $64 a year. You're not only getting a rangefinder, you're getting a lifetime service. Precision Pro Golf is based in Cincinnati, Ohio, where they perform all of their quality tests at Avon Fields Golf Course, the site of Big Randy's personal best score. If that's not good juju, I, I don't know what is. So go to precisionprogolf.com. Use coupon code NOLAYINGUP at checkout for $20 off our favorite rangefinder. Swing with confidence. Hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. Let's get back to Webb Simpson. Your golf swing, it looks a little different than a lot of swings on tour. Your game yes. is different on tour. Is it self-taught? I mean, what, what, how, did you, how did you learn the golf swing? So I grew up having like not a lot of technical instruction in my golf swing. Like I had a long-time coach from my home club, Ted Kegel, who was an amazing head pro, great teacher. Um, but I loved short game. I loved to play. So anytime I was practicing, I was on the short game area. Like I just loved chipping. And so I think I developed like a lot of hands in my game. So that's why I think I've always been a really good chipper, pitcher, and wedge player because I, I, I use a lot of hands. But it's also hurt me when it's come to having a technically sound golf swing. And so I think like the funny finishes, the helicopter follow-throughs, that comes from being such a feel player that um, it, it starts influencing the way it looks. And, you know, I tell people quite a lot, like, not many guys curve it anymore. I think Bubba, obviously, is kind of in a category of his own. He curves the ball. It's hard to curve it now with the technology of the golf ball and the driver and even our grooves now. They're, you know, they're not square grooves. So, but all that to say, I still see shots like I'm hitting a Torvalada in the 90s. Like, I still see curve right to left, left to right, depending on where the pin is. And so when you see kind of a funny finish, it's probably me trying to curve it or try to help the ball. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's unique. It doesn't look that pretty, but it's kind of how I've always been. Yeah. It's, uh, it, <laughs> I, 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 that's interesting that, you know, the, the finishes are, are related to the ball flight. I'm curious, is there, now I'm trying to think back at it. Is there one that looks like a draw and one that looks like a fade? Do you, do you feel like it, but do you feel like it were, I, I'm just, I, I'm trying yeah, to piece I mean, this together. Yeah. So, You'll probably never see it much with my cut swings, but it's more of a draw because through impact, my right hand is turning over. I'm trying to shut the face as I go through impact. Um, and if I have a funny finish, it's either because I turned it over too much or not enough. Um, and I'm, I'm saving it or I'm trying to correct it after the ball exits. And so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm, I would say my, my best my, the best ball striking I have, though, you'll see less of those funny finishes um, yeah. because, you know, I just feel like it, a lot of times it's me saving something that went technically wrong in the downswing. And so when I'm when I'm swinging well, you'll see less of it. I want to be very clear here that you're talking to a guy who lives extremely close to the hosel and hits a, a disproportionate <laughs> amount of shanks for 
uh, than he should. Would you say your swing in any way contributes to potentially hitting more shanks than some other tour players? That's a great question, and I actually don't know the answer. Polly would. Polly's like the the swing guru for me. It's funny the shanks I've hit. So I, I'm probably leading the PGA Tour in shanks for my career, but. Uh, Polly reminds me that when when I do hit a shank, that usually comes in a really good ball striking phase. Right, that's <laughs> so what like, I, your own yeah. TV when you do it usually. <laughs> yeah, like Masters, I had one. Uh, I was hitting it great around that time. Twenty twelve was like the fall was one of my better ball striking times, and I had a shank at the uh, at Cog Hill, the BMW. I shot sixty five the first round. I shanked it on eighteen, made par, cold shank, like in the grandstands shank. Uh, and then I shanked it a few weeks later at the Ryder Cup against Ian Poulter. So my most embarrassing moments for sure on tour have been following a shank. Well, do you? I still don't understand what it is, like how it happens. You know, I feel like I'm, I'll make a golf swing. Like, that, that looks, that felt totally fine. Well, how the hell did I hit the hosel? I know why mine happens. Like, uh, my, mine happens because I have a lot of face rotation going back. And so if you look at, if you freeze my backswing halfway back, my face will be a little more open than the average tour player. And so add that mixed in with my being a handsy player, I'm going to come into the ball heel leading a lot because I'm a drawer. And so if that face gets too open and my backswing doesn't complete, then I'm going to start healing the ball. But I got a great drill for you. All right. So you need to set up like you're normally going to hit it. Put a golf ball like one inch or maybe half an inch from the toe of your club and just hit like 10, 15 shots. You'll, you'll start hitting it closer to the center of the face. That's what I do when I'm healing it. And it works. I've got a wear pattern on the hosel of my nine iron at this point, so I'll try anything. <laughs> but uh, I want to go ahead from uh, to the 2012 uh, U.S. Open, of course, your first title. The most important question I can ask about that, though, is, of course, the Birdman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> have you had any contact with the Birdman since the, uh, since the ceremony? No. So Birdman, I loved it. Like, I think he thought I was upset, but I wasn't. Um, I thought it was a great story. Everybody wanted to ask me about it. So. You know, when people think of 2012 U.S. Open Olympic, I think they think of Birdman before anything. Uh, so he, he like, he did an official apology on YouTube that somebody sent me, but he didn't need to because I, I rather enjoyed it. Um, but, no, I haven't I haven't seen him. I mean, I'd love to see him come out. I mean, especially if I was able to win another U.S. Open, I would expect for him to be there. We, we've tried to get him on the podcast. He kind of flakes out. I, I think the, the redeeming quality of that was that it was for a, uh, a, a cause that he believed in and not just yeah. somebody that was a, a drunken hooligan. But uh, yeah, I, I, I got to admit, I have very few memories of that week, and I don't know if it's, you know, the, the highlights are scarce online. Um, yeah. You know, the storylines were kind of, you know, GMAC and Furick, and you, uh, you kind of snuck up and won it from a television presentation perspective yeah but when did you at what point are you thinking about winning that golf tournament I, I imagine it's probably not after 36 holes but you had it such a great weekend and uh kind of take us through that yeah so on Saturday when I went out I shot two under and I went from like 29th to eighth place I think and so I got done and I was just excited about the round I didn't care what place I was in I just remember thinking man I played really solid smart golf today and when I realized I was in eighth place, I'm like, wow, I moved a lot more than I thought. And then that was kind of the first time the light bulb went off, like, I have a chance to win. I'm still four back, but as we all know, anything can happen at a U.S. Open. And I still wasn't really thinking, like, man, I have a – like, on Sunday morning, I wasn't really, like, I got a great chance to win today. It was just, man, this is my first time having a chance to win a major. Like, I want to go out, capitalize, have a strong day. We'll see what happens. 
and I was two over through five and six is another really hard hole, but I, I was able to make birdie on six, seven, the short hole, and then eight, the par three. And when I made the turn, I'm like, okay, I know I'm only a couple back probably, no matter what they're doing back there. Then when I birdied 10, I made like a two footer for birdie and the crowd really cheered like louder than they should have for a two footer. And I realized at that point, okay, I'm probably right there. And that's when I started really having fun. Cause I'm like, man, and, and, and honestly, to your question earlier about 2011 and kind of not wanting to be in those moments in a way, like almost being too nervous, 2012, I felt like I've won twice. I had a great year. Like, I know this is a major, I know this is new, but I really embraced it and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, a the, I think it's something that only comes from experience, you know? And yeah, I do too. What what do you when you think back to that week as to what you did better than everyone else? How what what contributed to your win? It was your game. Was that the best you've ever played in a major? Up until that point, yes. You know what's funny is I go to Memorial two weeks prior and I shoot or I miss a cut by eight shots. I think it was six shots, eight shots. It was it was a terrible week. I go to the U.S. Open. I had a terrible Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, like hitting it everywhere. We go to the range Wednesday afternoon, the far right side of the Olympic, all by ourselves. People are gone. Reps are gone. No one's in sight. It's just me and Paul. And I remember hitting balls for about an hour and a half, and Paul found something early in that session, and I started flushing it. And, you know, I go out, and I don't, I don't have a great first two days. I'm just, like I said, I'm in like 28th, 29th. But I think what I did on the weekend is I played the U.S. Open golf course how you're supposed to play it. I avoided big numbers. I made the eight to 10 footers when I needed to, to keep momentum. And I just kind of kept plotting. I, I really didn't do anything special, but you know, it, it was just, it was kind of what I needed to do. And I needed a little help from Furek McDowell, whoever else on Sunday. And they did, they, they helped me out a little bit. If they had gone out and shot a couple under, it was ball game over. And so the why Tiger's record and Jack's record is so impressive. Uh, and even Brooks this early in his career is that, for us to play only four of these majors a year, to win, unless you blow a field away, like you gotta, there are a lot of things have to happen in your favor. Like mm-hmm. you gotta go out and play well and play solid. But any given round, as you know, because you're in golf, it, somebody can shoot six, seven, eight under, even in a major. And like I tell people all the time, I could have a three shot lead at Augusta, go out, play a great final round of three under. And around that golf course, somebody gets hot and shoots seven, eight under. I lose. Nobody ever remembers that I finished second. But right. yet, I played great. And so that's why winning these guys winning majors multiple times is, is even more impressive to me. That's why I, that, I think about Phil at 2016 at Troon all the time. Yeah. I mean, he was 11 shots clear of third place and didn't win. It's got to just be absolutely, absolutely maddening. So take me through that 18th hole. And so, like, for example, how take me through like your second shot into 18 where that ball ends up because i mean that if that goes if, if it goes a foot further left you're on the you're on the green and in great shape if it goes a couple feet further right you're may not able to get up and down so kind of what are some of the things that went your way on that day that that birdie stretch in the middle of the round uh 6 7 8 and 10 were kind of the that was kind of the main birdie burst that got me the US Open i think and then the rest of the round was really solid. I hit, I, I might have hit every fairway and every green coming in except 18. So 18, for, for people who haven't played Olympic, the fairway is kind of, 
is really tight. The hole's only like 350, but when you lay up, if you lay up down the right, it kicks right. If you lay up down the left, it kicks left. So I hit five iron off the tee, left center, kicks left, goes in the kind of first cutter rough. And Mike Davis is the one responsible for this graduated rough. So when the ball goes in the rough three yards, you're going to have a better lie than if you're in the rough eight yards. So I was in that first cutter rough. I had a decent lie. I had nine iron. And we knew that anything left of the pin was, was going to be a bogey. Um, and so we were kind of looking right center, right edge of the green knowing that right was going to be fine to that pin. Not easy up and down, but doable. So when I hit the shot, I was leaning because it came out of hair right. I knew it was going to be close. And because the green's elevated, we can't see. And so you're relying on the crowd to tell you where the ball is. And the crowd kind of made this weird, like, moan of a noise. And I looked at Paul. I'm like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> like, if, they, if, they, if they're, like, upset the crowd they'll let you know it probably went in the bunker or if they clap it's on the green but this this reaction we had no idea so we get up there and then u.s opens they take all the sprinkler heads around the green they cut out astroturf and put it over it normally but this one was an old sprinkler head that just remained grass they had removed the plastic i tried to get a ruling to to say hey because this is an old sprinkler head do i get relief and he said no so i had to play it um, and Chris, this is actually funny. Like n- nobody knows this unless you've played Olympic, but when I go walk around the pin to look kind of just to assess my chip, I noticed that if I hit this chip about 10 feet too hard and left of the pin, there's this little area of fringe and fairway that will take the ball 30 to 40 yards down the hill. <laughs> and so I'm like, Holy cow. So I, all that made me do is aim a little further, right? It's a right to left chip. The lie was funky. I didn't really know how to hit it. I asked Paul, I said, what do you think I need to do here? And He basically said, just hinge and unhinge really fast, no follow through. And just kind of a little chop shot. And that's what I did. I was hoping for eight feet, and it came out, and it was just one of those, it comes out, and you know it's going to be pretty good. It went down to about four feet. and um, My mind wandered a little bit where it shouldn't have, you know, while I'm waiting for Nicholas Colsarts to putt out. But I kind of got control of my mind and just told myself, hey, read this putt, you know, aim this putt, start it online just like you have been all week. It's, it's another four-footer. And that really helped me kind of regain focus. It was a left-edge putt. And when it went in, it was a big sigh of relief, but I, I knew I still had 20 minutes to wait for the guys behind me. Mm-hmm. You're looking back at those highlights. Your body type is a little different now than it was, than it was then. What yeah. what happened? Like, how did you? Uh, how did you? What, what, talk about that progress. Oh man, I yeah, I was. I'm the same weight now, but I think I look different now. But that was my soft drink days. I, I used to drink <laughs> a lot of soda, like four or five a day. Oh, um, man. No offense to the to the all the soda manufacturers, but that's that was the main contributor. So yeah, my face was a bit more round then. And so you go, uh, that, that, I, that win is going to help you get on the Ryder Cup team 2012. You guys come out at Medina, you and Bubba are paired up. And those, I was there those first couple of days, man, that was just a clinic. I mean, it was, you guys yeah. were killing it. It was so fun to watch. Do you, what do you, when, when I mentioned the 2012 Ryder Cup, do you look back with fond memories of your first Ryder Cup and playing well, or do you remember what happens on Sunday? Gosh. I remember both. I mean, it's a very of all the team events I've played, it's probably the most vivid team event. And it's you know, it is was that eight years ago. Um, Davis was an amazing captain all week. We had Michael Jordan come in, give us a 
a free Ryder Cup uh, pump-up speech, which was amazing. So we had a 10-6 lead. We're feeling great. We're playing great. Our whole team is incredibly confident um, when we go to bed Saturday night. And Davis, he did an amazing job even Saturday night. You know, it was short and sweet, told us to keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, he, he sent out, I think, he kind of front-loaded it and back-loaded it. And, you know, he's – I've heard him say before, like, he wishes he'd have done stuff differently. But I think he did as as best he knew he could do in that moment. And so it was humiliating, I think, to lose a lead like that in my first Ryder Cup. And honestly, we're just as sad after that we didn't win for Davis as anything because he's a guy on tour that I think you could say this only about a few guys that everyone loves Davis and everyone's got huge respect for him, his career, you name it. And so that was hard. But being my first Ryder Cup, I experienced things that I've never experienced in the game of golf. Like the most nervous you'll ever be as a golfer, I'm convinced, is in a Ryder Cup. But the most fun you'll ever have as a golfer, I think, is winning a point in the Ryder Cup. I mean, it is so fun. Uh, You're winning it for your country, your team. And what's cool, Chris, is like PJ Tour players, like everybody's got, I don't want to say ego, but everybody's got confidence. Like everybody walks around these tournaments, they believe in themselves, and that's probably why they made it to the PJ Tour, and that's great. But these team events, all that goes away in like, you know, everybody talks about you play for your team, play for your country, play for each other. But it, it's kind of cool to experience guys in a team environment because all that, all the self-accomplishments goes away for that few days of golf, which is really fun to experience. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah, you, you, you can dominate each other, you know, week in, week out. But now you owe it to the rest of the team to play what play good golf this week. And exactly. it kind of just humbles you at least a little bit. It does. Yeah, yeah you forget about yourself. Well, on a different topic here, I wanted to make sure we got to this because I know there's a lot to cover with it. But the the progress, uh, the timeline of the of the anchor ban, and yeah. I want to know when you kind of first heard rumblings, when you what your reaction was when the ruling came out. Personally, it's like the ball's going very very far, and, and this did not feel like a huge priority item. Uh, right. Did you guys feel that there was a target on you know on the backs of guys that were anchoring or were you know using a long putter? And did you feel it was necessary? Kind of what was your initial reaction to it? Yeah, I think it was – I felt like it was targeted because you get Keegan Bradley winning the PJ Championship and then I win the U.S. Open and then Ernie Ellis wins the British Open and then Adam Scott wins the Masters, all with those style putters. So I think we did feel like it was targeted and we didn't feel like the evidence was there to support a ban because I think evidence would say if you look at the top 30 putters on the PJ Tour – how many guys use anchor putter? And I don't even know if any of us were in the top 30 at the time. I don't know how it happened. My guess is the governing bodies got together. Maybe they didn't like that these these types of putters that guys were using went in their tournaments. Maybe they didn't like that. You know, we have seen that I think that they can sometimes be old school in their thinking, wanting the game to be the way it was 20, 40, 50 years ago. When, you know, the game's evolving. I mean, Jack Nicholas. nobody talks about this distance report that Jack Nicholas would have flown Ben Hogan by 30 yards. Uh, and so Jack Nicholas's technology was a lot better than Ben Hogan's, but I don't remember hearing problems then when he was playing and dominating. And so I just, my whole thing with these governing bodies is I want there to be more emphasis from PJ Tour players and rules officials when these decisions are being made. I really do. And I don't feel... 
like our opinions have been validated by these governing bodies and our rules officials are seeing PJ tour tournaments 45 weeks a year. And so they know better than anybody what needs to be happening. And I don't feel like their voice is loud enough to be honest. Well, when did you start with the belly putter and what, what does it do for you? I got it. I've tried it. It does nothing yeah. for me, but, <laughs> but what it clearly does things for, uh, you know, some, some people and they, they love it. What did it do for you and how long did you use it? So, I went to Wake in 04, Wake Forest, freshman year, and I go to Pinehurst for Thanksgiving break, and I'm, I'm going out to play with my dad. And at the time, like, I had grown up being a great putter, but I had become a very streaky putter. And in the pro shop there at Country Club of North Carolina in Pinehurst, they had a ping belly putter. And I putted it to one of those little things that spits the ball back out. And I'm like, man, this thing feels amazing. Like, it feels awkward, but, like, I like it. And so I, I asked the guys in the shop, I said, hey, can I take this out for nine holes? They said, sure. Well, I go out for nine holes, and I, I made everything. And I end up buying it, and I went back to Wake. And honestly, like, my teammates kind of made fun of me. Like, why are you using a belly putter? Like, it wasn't that common in 04. But I started putting a lot more consistently. You know, I don't know how different it made my stroke, but for – no other reason than I became, you know, more confident. I switched for good. And then I used that same putter that I bought in that pro shop for 11 years until, you know, it was banned. And, you know, I, I, I've had anxiety in the past. Like I, I've struggled with that with putting. And then when I switched the short putter, which was I switched the end of 14. So Ryder Cup 2014 at Glen Eagles, we're packing up our locker after we lost. And Polly says, hey, we're going to Dunlop Phoenix in a couple weeks or whatever, a couple months in November. Why don't we go ahead and switch the short putter, get a year under our belt. That way we're not the focus come January 1, 2016, when it's going to become illegal. And we, we just go ahead and start working with it. And I said, great. So Dunlop Phoenix 2014 was my first professional tournament with a short putter and my first uh, tournament with a short putter in like 12 years. And so it was a struggle. I mean, those first few months were pretty good, but then it got bad. Uh, and then, you know, I, I was one of the wor worst putters on the PJ tour for two years. Well, what is the struggle? What's the struggle? I mean, are you just, is it face path? Is it, is it just a pure confidence issue? What, what is it, what changes in you from the belly yeah. putter to the short putter? Well, I think my stroke with the belly putter was naturally better for, for whatever reason, mechanically, it just was better. And so when I went to the short putter and, and my putting got really bad, I realized, okay, I don't know anything about putting. Like I know nothing about putting. I'm going to become a student of putting. So I started talking to guys who are great putters like Brant, Baddeley, Greg Chalmers. And I started trying to figure out what they do well and why do they do it. Because, that, I mean, Brant's stroke looks a lot different than Aaron Baddeley's. Um, but they must do some things very similarly. So I started learning how do they putt, uh, how am I going to putt and putt well. And that led me to really researching the best putting method for me. And once I found the arm lock, I realized my stroke is better. My aim is better. I started a line and 2016 is when I switched to the arm lock putter. And honestly, Chris, like I got to a point with putting where I never thought if you had told me, Hey, you're going to become one of the best putters on the PGA tour. I would have said you're crazy, but I've had two years now where I've been like, you know, top 10 in strokes game putting. And so I'm just amazed that, you know, that's happened. Well, you went from 174th in 2015, 177th in 16, 
to fifth in 18 and 11th in 19. Like that's, <laughs> that's a, that doesn't get talked about enough. It's not only like you're putting better now. Is it, safe, I guess is, is it safe to say you're putting better now with arm lock than you were even with the belly putter? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, was never, I was never a great putter with the belly putter. I was always like 30th to maybe 80th. So call it average. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the arm lock putter. I mean, I, I I thank God all the time for you know giving me a couple of years. I think the other thing that I'm learning too is like golf is a funny game, and when you go through struggle, you realize that golf is very fleeting. And right when you think you're going to be at the top of your game for a while, it seems like inevitably you'll hit another speed bump or two. Um, and so I'm just I've learned through the struggle to appreciate the good play, knowing it's not going to last forever. Um, I want it to last for a while, but hey, I'm going to enjoy it while I can and um, and just be thankful for, you know, a couple good years of putting. Hopefully it's, it keeps up. Well, when you're struggling with putting in 15, 16, does it bleed into other parts of your game? Does it add a ton more pressure, you know, to other parts of your game? And it, it just kind of felt like for, you know, at least a period of time that you kind of became a forgotten man on tour. Does that have any kind of uh, psychological effect on you? Yeah, I mean, I think when you go from making, you know, the team events from 2011 to 2014 and the Tour Championship each year to no team events, no Atlanta, you feel it. I mean, you 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 question what you're doing. Uh, motivation is actually harder. You know, it's harder to be motivated when you're not playing well. But thankfully, my boss striking during those couple of years was really solid and was able to keep me, like, at least, you know, competing into the playoffs. Um, but there was many a dark night where I thought, Hey, if I don't figure out this putting, I'm never going to be able to really compete again on the tour. Like I want to, but my dad, I mean, he was the biggest influencer in, in, in my life in the game of golf. And from day one of golf, his, one of his biggest things he taught me on over, over and over was to never quit and never give up. I mean, I remember asking him when I was like 10 years old, I'm like, Hey, what if I shoot 50 on the front nine of a golf tournament? Like, do I have to go play the back? And he's like, I don't care if you shoot a hundred on the front nine, you got to finish around and turning your scorecard unless you're hurt or sick. And so he, you know, he got uh, Louis body dementia at the end of his life. And so through my struggle, we weren't able to talk a ton about um, putting, but man, I heard his voice louder and clearer than ever through those dark times of just, you know, don't throw in the towel. That's never even an option. You got to keep going and you got to keep trying to figure out something. It'll turn around at some point. So my dad was a huge help uh, during that time, even though we weren't like talking about it a lot. Well, what, what ended up happening to the actual, the belly putter that you, that you, the, the pink belly butter? Yeah. So it's funny. So back to Dunlop Phoenix, I got a little nervous on the way to, uh, or the day before I was supposed to leave for Tokyo. And I called Paulie. I'm like, Hey bud, let's just go one more turn with the belly putter. I'll, I'll, I'll switch after Dunlop Phoenix going into, you know, the first tournament in January at Sony open. He's like, buddy, I really think we should take the short putter. I think we start working with it now. And I hung up the phone with Paul. I thought about it, talked to my wife for a second. And then I saw my golf bag in the garage and something just came over me. Chris, I, I literally walk over to the bag and I snapped the belly putter over my knee. Like it was the most non-emotional club snap in the history of club snaps. <laughs> I wasn't mad. I wasn't frustrated. I just had a moment where I'm like, hey, if, if I don't break this putter, then I'm not switching. And I snapped it, and I'm walking to the trash can to throw it away. And my wife's like, sweetie, 
that putter's been so good to you. You need to save it. Like, at least put it in the trophy case. I'm like, you're right. So it sits in my trophy case now in two pieces. But I felt like it was one of those moments in my life where I had to do something drastic in order to, to change. Um, and, yeah, so I still have it, but well, it's what not did, usable. What did the 2018 players feel like? I mean, you would had a lot of success kind of since you switched to the arm lock, but, I mean, that was dominant. That was that was just felt like a statement of some kind of, like, I'm, I'm back, here I am. What did uh, what did that win really feel like after all you'd kind of been through? That win was the most meaningful win um, of all of them because it had been four and a half years since I won uh, because my putting struggles and because we lost my dad in 2017 in November. And so, you know, fast forward six, seven months, I, I'm, I'm at the, you know, our kind of fifth major. Polly, my caddy, Polly grew up there. Um, it's a home tournament for him. Like you, you put all that together and it's mother's day. You know, I'm a, you know, my wife has, my wife and I, we, she's a mom of five and my mom lost, you know, obviously her husband. And so it was just, there's so much like emotional pieces to that Sunday. And that's why, you know, like I said, with putting, I didn't know if I would ever win again. I doubted it. Like I never gave up on the fact that I could win, but I, I had serious doubt. And so that, that experience of shooting 63 on Friday with a double and then, you know, seven shot league going to Sunday, it was kind of one of those storybook weeks that you dream about as a kid. And it was, it was a relief. It kind of felt like the first win again, getting the monkey off your back of, of winning that, you know, that long drought of four and a half years finally was over. Is coming into a round with a seven shot lead different nerve wise than coming in with a one or two shot lead and how so, if so, yeah, it is different. Um, you can't blow water, a seven-shot lead. That, that's... Yeah, you, exactly. That's the thing. If you have a one-shot lead and you lose, well, people don't really care and they'll forget about it. If you have a seven-shot lead, you will long be remembered. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, go, starting out, my game plan was I'm going to go out and I'm going to play the same golf I've been playing. And, you know, my, my when I was 11 under on Friday, I didn't think I, – I wasn't trying to play aggressive. It just happened that way. And so I reminded myself on Sunday, hey, I'm going to go play the same golf, pretty conservative, you know, for tour averages I am. I had a good start. I was one under through seven. And when I birdied seven, that was my first birdie, that was kind of a sigh of relief, like going into the, the middle part of the round. So very different experience than anything I had played in before, but a lot harder than I had thought it'd be. Mm-hmm. Well, I just remember as a big American golf fan going into France in the fall of 2018 with a completely different confidence level in you uh, in that team event. That golf course was a great, great fit to you. What did you when you first saw the Golf National? What did you What did you think, and how that fit to your game? Yeah, I loved it. I realized, you know, I had heard from Justin Thomas, who played in the French Open, that it was really hard, uh, really tight, and so I. Th- I remember thinking, okay, it sounds like a good golf course for me. We get there, and the rough on both sides, they mowed it towards us on the tee. So everything was into the grain. And so I realized, man, this is like a U.S. Open. Like, it's tight, and if you hit in the rough, it's incredibly penal. I mean, this is how hard it was. The 10th hole there, I hit it in the right rough playing with Bubba. Bubba's arguably our greatest rough player on the PGA Tour. With how steep his shaft comes down, how much power he has, he can literally hit it out of any lie. And we had 115 yards to the hole. 
and he pulled out a seven wood. Like he, and, and, and he hit like an amazing shot just over the green, but that's how tall the rough was. And so, yeah, going into it, um, I'd come off a good week in Atlanta. I finished fourth and I was confident. I actually didn't, it's kind of like US Open. I actually had a terrible Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday practice. Um, Bob and I didn't play. We played okay against McElroy and Poulter, but then against Norn and Sergio, we played really well. And, and Bubba is kind of a dream alternate shot partner. He gets talked a lot about in the four ball because everybody thinks like he's long, he makes a bunch of birdies. But alternate shot, he's an amazing partner because if you drive him in the rough, like he's he's super comfortable there. And so you don't feel pressure. And then lag putting, he's the greatest lag putter on tour. So you're never going to have three or four footers playing with Bubba. So I love playing with him in alternate shot. Well, I was going to say, Bubba's got, you know, I know he's a good friend of yours, and he's he's got a definitely safe to say a different personality. And it seems like you guys are, when you are on the same teams together, that it's just a, a foregone conclusion that you're going to play together. Is that something you or he asks for? And is it, you know, is, do you guys feel like that's going to be a thing continuing going forward? I think so. I mean, he, he's arguably my closest friend on the PGA Tour. And so that helps. In, in these Ryder Cups, these high-intensity, high-emotional environments, you need to be with someone that you're comfortable with. And that seems obvious, but when you're out there and you're playing with a friend, like it's it, it feels great. And I do think Bubba and I's games, although they're so different, they complement each other well because neither of us are that opinionated on like what holes we tee off on. I mean, France, Medina, even Royal Melbourne, it was just kind of we talked about it and like, if there was one hole we didn't like, you know, the other one of us would take that those holes. And so we're comfortable with each other, and, we ha- like, he makes me laugh. I- I'm probably too serious. He's probably too funny, and we kind of level each other out. And so I think that's why our record, I would say, is, is not great, but it's not bad. It- it- it's decent. And so we're a pretty good team, I think. <laughs> well, we, we always joke that it seems like you get, you get the babysitting roles in some of these, <laughs> in some of these events. And so fast forwarding to the 2019 president's cup, when did you learn you were going to get paired with Patrick Reed? This is again, extremely shortly after uh, the incident that happened in the Bahamas. And did you have any idea what that kind of fan reaction was going to be like? So usually captains will, will get you to send like a short list of guys that you want to play with. They take that information and they try to figure out kind of the practice rounds, the pods, who guys might play with. And they try to let us know as much as they can, hey, these are the guys you'll probably play with. So Patrick, he was on my short list. He and I play the same golf ball. Patrick, I would say of all the guys on tour who play most similar to me, I would say is Patrick Reed. We shape it the same. We, you know, we just see the game from the same lens. So I just thought, man, an alternate shot, I want to play with Patrick. So we actually decided on Tuesday, we had a conversation, Tuesday of Bahamas, that is, that we're going to we'd love to play together. I mean, we talked about it and we basically said, Hey, let's both tell Tiger. We want to play together in alternate in Australia. And so we did. And so we, we had an understanding going in that we were going to be paired together. We go out in the practice rounds. We had a great couple of days together. You know, we're playing matches and we just felt like we got the right holes. You know, he's going off one. I'm going off two, or he's going off odds. I'm going off evens. And we just felt dialed in. Now, the fan reaction was way more than I anticipated. I knew it was going to be a little bit rough, but I did not know it was going to be that rough. And so, honestly, like, I know we were 0-3, but we go out the first match, we played really nice. Uh, we played, we just got beat. The second match, alternate shot, was our best match of the entire week. And we got beat by a leash for an answer. 
And what's crazy is you never know in these team events, are you going to go against the team that plays great or okay or flat? And that day we just got beat. So we go into the team room. We talk to Tiger and the captains. They're like, hey, what do y'all want to do tomorrow? And they the reason they're asking us because they looked at our scorecard. They know we're playing well, even though we were 0-2. And they just want to see, like, what are we – do we want to go out again together? And I said, 100%. Like, I want to go out. Like, I don't think we're going to get beat three times because we're playing great. Well, we go out, and that was our worst match. We made one bur- <laughs> We made one birdie between us, so anybody's going to beat us. So it is just unfortunate, like, to end that way with a guy that I really wanted to play with who we were playing great, but we just – you know, 0-3, doesn't matter how good you play, we're 0-3. Well, that's the thing about the team matches is we don't get to see enough of the matches at home to know yeah. how great people are playing. We just see three down and we say, oh, God, how can they put these guys back out yeah. there and all that? So I'm sure there definitely is some nuance to it. You spoke out, like there was, uh, you guys did an interview together uh, afterwards and kind of just spoke out against some of the heckling he was receiving you mentioned it being undeserved. You guys were in such a crazy, unenviable position that week of of being a teammate of somebody that was under a, a huge amount of scorn. But as a fellow professional, did you got, did you have an issue at all with what happened in the Bahamas? Again, I know it's a, a different thing for having to be a teammate with the guy the next week, but as a, as a professional, if that happened at any other time period, did that bother you at all? You know, when things like that happen, I always try to give the player the benefit of the doubt. Like, Knowing that cameras are everywhere, I try to just be fair and say, hey, listen, whatever happened, that's between you and the guys you were playing with and, you know, the rules official. And he's going to assess what he thinks. And the rules official looked at it and thought, you know, there needs to be a penalty. Um, But, I mean, I know Patrick Reed. I consider him a friend of mine. And so if I'm in that situation, here's how I'll say it. If I'm in that situation and something happens where something looks like something went wrong, I want other guys to give me the benefit of the doubt if I say that my intention was not to do that. And that's why we have rules. I mean, he he stated his intentions were not to improve the lie. The rules official assessed the penalty and that was that. And so that's, you know, it's the the way the game is and we're going to we're going to see situations that are hard to determine, you know, what the right thing is or isn't to do, but yeah, I mean, my opinion of Patrick Reed did not change. You know, I still consider him a friend. What's it like? You've played on a lot of teams, you know, with a lot of different captains. What's it like playing for Tiger freaking Woods uh, in the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne? Uh, it was a dream. I mean, honestly, all week I, I kept thinking, you know, telling myself as a kid, if, if I had told somebody had told me as a kid that I get to play in a President's Cup captain by the greatest player of all time, uh, I would have said, man, that sounds amazing. And it was. I mean, he was an incredible captain. He said just enough and not too much in the team rooms. You could tell as a captain how much he cared about us and a, and he cared about winning. And nothing surprised me that week except, I mean, I was honestly surprised, like, how involved he was. Like, I knew he would be involved, but, man, he – I had never seen him as happy as he was on on Sunday when we won. I mean, that was – and I remember even talking to Mark Steinberg and Mark – I mean, I told Mark, I said, Mark, man, I, I'd never seen Tiger smile that big. And Mark just kind of said, yeah, I know. I mean, he's he's as happy as I've seen him. So I think it was good to be around Tiger that week. He played amazing golf, um, you know, 3-0. and And that week, like, it did not look good for us all week. 
but we were, you know, just had a special Sunday, but it was weird. Like I had this, it looking back, I never, none of us ever really panicked. And I never really thought like, we're going to lose the president's cup. It was kind of that quiet, like confidence, like, Hey, I think we're going to play really well tomorrow. And we did. Well, you could just see as the week went along, how much better you guys got at playing that golf course. It looked like you guys got punched in the face by it a little bit early in the week. There was jet lag. There was just a lot going on with it. And it was day by day. It was like, okay, they're figuring out how to get to some of these pins and, and how to, how to chart around this place. And by yeah, by that final day, it was like, okay, here they come, here, here come the floodgates. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, after the president's cup, I actually realized how, what, how much we had to win on Sunday. And I was kind of surprised because going into it, I didn't really think about how many matches we got to win. I was trying to just stay in my match. But looking back, I'm like, man, we had to do a lot of work on Sunday, more than maybe I thought. Well, and maybe that was good. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, there's a couple more things I got to shoehorn in here before we go. Um, tw- I skipped past 2014 Ryder Cup. We So a lot was made out of you basically text sending text messages to Tom Watson that uh, influenced the final decision of that. Was that... How well reported was all of that, and was it accurate? And how 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 did that all actually play out? So I wanted to make the team so bad. I mean, I always do. I want to make these team events, and I was sitting there one day, and I thought, like, if it comes down to it, and he does, Tom's trying to decide between me and another guy. I at least want him to know how bad I want to make this team. The sour taste left in my mouth in 2012. You know, losing that Ryder Cup, I wanted to play another one so badly. And so I just thought, hey, it can't hurt. I mean, he's not going to pick the other guy because I text him that I want to be on the team. So it can't hurt. So I texted him, and I just said, man, listen, I want to be on that team. Uh, I know you're going to make the best decision for the team, but, I like, I really want to be on it. Um, and I don't know, you know, how in the end how much it really did influence him, but I thought if I'm the captain and I got a text from a player telling me how bad they want to be on the team – I wouldn't see it as a negative. I would see it as, man, he really wants to to play for America. Mm-hmm. Last thing, uh, before you go, there was a video circulating before the 2018 Ryder Cup that I believe you're familiar with, at least your family was familiar with, about the uh, the commentary on your appearance as you walked off the plane. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> That's my future sister-in-law that made that video, by the way. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah, my mom, she made my mom really happy. So you can tell her my mom's a big fan of her. And I think they actually connected. I think my mom knows her. They now. did. They definitely did. And I had to make sure I asked you about that. So Yeah, my mom's a proud mom. She any Anytime somebody says something good about me, she, she thinks that they're her best friend and she loves them. And anytime somebody says something negative, she tries to like take up for me, which is funny. Uh, but I said, Mom, there are going to be people always saying good and bad as long as I'm you know in the public. Right. Uh, so. It's all right. right. Well, hey, man, appreciate you taking the time on a Saturday morning. And uh, this was absolutely yes, sir, awesome. Buddy. Really appreciate it. They had a great time, and the listeners are going to love yeah. this. So. Thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it, buddy. Anytime. Cheers. All right. See you, buddy. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect.